I appreciated the Q&A period at the, the latter end of the morning because it's always a little funny to give a Dharma talk on the first afternoon or evening of a retreat because we haven't met with each of you individually yet and we care for our teachings to be you know, really relevant and responsive to what's happening for you. So it was nice to hear your voices and hear some of what's happening for a few of you because from up here, I look out and there's these, you know, kind faces and bodies sitting earnestly practicing and I know there's so much more going on on the inside. Do you ever come on retreat and have ideas about what it's going to be like? Ideas about, oh great, I'm going to unplug. I'm going to become calm and peaceful and get enlightened and, you know, enjoy the rain and the nature. And it's like, yeah, that's some of of what may unfold. But some of you may also be planning your escape route. You know, so often, um, like Rebecca pointed to last night, you know, we come on retreat and so much of what we have been hovering above, so much of what we've been running away from or distracting ourselves away from, it just is like front and center in the heart. So often the first day there can just be this process of so much sifting through you know, the mind can just be going bananas, like for the sake of going bananas. You know, often I'll sit on retreat and it's like, these things come into my mind that I haven't thought about for 20 or 30 years. It's remarkable how these memories will, will come up to the surface. On this first day, you know, your nervous systems are getting used to how it is. Often we live with two speeds, you know, full-on gas, being productive, going for it, going for it, or being totally checked out, watching Netflix in the bathtub. And so this kind of grounded, wakeful, easeful attention, it just takes a bit for the nervous system to kind of find that sweet spot. Because as much as you may be wanting space from the, the, just the kind of onslaught of daily life, I, I can experience it like a, a whir, a hum, a, you know, kind of constant, just the momentum of, of doing, the momentum of all the information that comes our way in a single day. You know, as much as we may want space from it, there can be a way that, that we're tethered to it. You know, the system's kind of set in that way. And so this very real process of settling that, that you're in, and the good news is that as space opens up on the inside, as mindfulness begins to be more embodied, begins to land more front and center, you know, the distractions, the whir, the hum becomes a little less compelling, becomes not so satisfying, becomes redundant, becomes, you know, like just less of a, of a 
of a thing in a way. You know, and the same is true for all the stories we tell ourselves. You know, as mindfulness steps, as mindfulness it grows and becomes more central in the way that the experience is known, the, you know, the, the storylines, the very precious convictions, the, the well-trodden narratives, you know, like they, they still go on, but they, they just become a little less fascinating. So a lot of the practice this early time in the retreat is just, you know, do you feel safe enough for that monologue, that, that ongoing monologue to begin to rest? The safer we feel, the more that this monologue can begin to rest. And the more available you know, we become to be touched by this moment, this moment that is fresh, that is new, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, you know, the, the world just offers herself to us really in every moment. Some of you probably love the, the poetry of Mary Oliver, the late, great Mary Oliver. And uh, her beloved, her partner, Molly Malone Cook, who died before she did, um, you know, Mary, Mary Oliver would write and speak some about her relationship with Molly. And I just wanted to share with you a paragraph from Mary Oliver speaking about M, her beloved. And this speaks to what we're doing here with how we hold attention. She says, It's frequently been remarked about my own writings that I emphasize the notion of attention. This began simply enough, just to see that the way the flicker flies is different from the way the swallow plays in the golden air of summer. It was my pleasure to notice such things. It was a good first step. But later, watching M when she was taking photographs and watching her in the dark room, and no less watching the intensity and openness with which she dealt with friends and strangers too, taught me what real attention is about. Attention without feeling, I began to learn, is only a report. An openness and empathy was necessary if the attention was to matter. Such openness and empathy M had in abundance and gave away so freely. I was in my late 20s and early 30s and filled with a sense of my own thoughts, my own presence. I was eager to address the world of words, to address the world with words. Then M instilled in me this deeper level of looking and working of seeing through the heavenly visibles to the heavenly invisibles. I think of this always when I look at her photographs, the images of vitality, hopefulness, endurance, kindness, vulnerability. We each had our separate natures, yet our ideas, our influences upon each other became a rich and abiding confluence. So attention without feeling is only a report. 
Yeah, and this 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 um, touching into something that is may include words, but that's deeper than words. That's part of why we're really here is to touch into a more immediate experience of being alive. And there's a way that you know we use all these words. I'm up here talking to you. These words to express our experience, but. We're, we're touching into the territory of the heart, the power of the mind, the dynamism of the body, in a way that's actually more direct than what any word may necessarily ever express. Words are like pointers. And the practice, as we've been saying, the practice is simple, but, you know... Most folks aren't used to being simple. What are you used to doing? Thinking about stuff. Used to thinking about things. And so we're cultivating a kind of understanding that, that um, isn't from thinking about things. I and mean, the Buddha did not become awakened by thinking. He became awakened by this, this just really giving his heart over to this practice, and that's how insight happens. You know, insight, a, m- a moment, conditions are such, this arises, we don't think our way there. But it's a real retraining, and, and um, a friend of ours describes the first day of retreat as like, a, like going along in a station wagon with a bunch of stuff in the back seat, going along at a pretty good pace, and suddenly putting the brakes on. What happens? You know, everything that's been in the back just rushes into the front. And it could feel like that. Like, whoa. And so some of what I want to, I think, bring forward tonight, this afternoon, we usually give talks. Actually, not usually. A lot of the time, talks are given in the evening, and so I'm really appreciating the schedule of having talks in the afternoon because I feel awake, you may feel more awake. It gives you kind of the rest of the day to feel into how the talk's resonating for you. But I, I want to share with you some of my love and confidence in this practice because I have, I have great love of Dharma and of the practice, and I have such confidence in this path, in this practice. So if your confidence in being here is wavering, you can, you can uh, draft off mine. You can borrow some of mine. And I've been really appreciating uh, in, my, in my own practice how much, you know, Jamo talked about refuge last night and in the, the urgency of these times of climate emergency and so much gendered and racialized injustice, you know, it's just a sense of, of um, the, the great need for deepened refuge, the great need for a place to come home to that is not, that um, we need a reservoir of something inside of us that is not distraught in order to be able to respond, in order to be able to show up um, in the long haul. And part of the Buddha's instructions to us is, you know, we're, we're practicing really quite, the instructions we're giving are really quite, quite from the, the, the classical instructions, you know, instruction to basically step away from daily life and go sit at the root of a tree, the base of a tree. And we're not sitting under trees because it's raining out and there are wood ticks. 
but we've we stepped away from daily life and you're here you know you're here held in nature even inside of this building you're held in nature and in a in the anapanasati sutta which is a which is a discourse about how to kind of cultivate awareness of breathing and body in a way that brings balance and harmony uh, you know, one of the instructions that just come over and over again is putting aside your greed and distress with reference to the world. I can notice what happens in you when you hear these words, putting aside your greed and distress with reference to the world. It can be often kind of mixed. I, I sat a month of, of retreat last year and I came into the retreat, and I was so, um, I just felt shredded inside from all that was going on in my life, from all that was going on in my community. And there was a sense of just, you know, coming into the practice feeling like, no, I, I can't put this down. I, I, I shouldn't put this down. I've got to be thinking about this. I've got to be, you know, solving problems and dealing with stuff. It's just this, I just had to really remind myself over and over again the soothing of part of the instruction being to take a time. It's, it's not a kind of escapism at all, but to take a time to put aside, to be willing to viveka, withdraw, uh, create some space in your own hearts for more of your experience. And it's not that we turn away from, really, because when we come and sit, you know, it's all here. And, you know, you may be meeting distress or grief or yearning or wanting, the practice can hold it all. It's really important to give yourself permission to put down what can be put down, to, put, to allow whatever can be laid to rest to help you be more present here. It's like a, a gift, a gift to give yourself in a way that will support you um, living your life from a place of wholeness, a place of connectedness. Those words by Rumi, let yourself be silently drawn by the deeper pull of what you really love. Something that you really love brought you here to this retreat. Like there's some kernel that has, may have to do with suffering and may have to do with love or compassion that brought you here. It's like there is very deliberate, every, each one of you being in this room in this way. There's no mistake. And no matter how your first day is going, the truth is, this is your retreat. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, this is how it is. This is nature. My my first retreat, I I was raised in Fargo, North Dakota, like the movie. So I was raised in a family in North Dakota with a really strong work ethic, and in our family, rational mind was pretty much God. Um, and there was that you know constant kind of Midwestern work ethic of pull up your bootstraps, do it on your own, keep working, keep working, keep working. That's kind of what made somebody be a good person. In the, in the culture of my family and some of my community. And so I started my retreat practice. I was 20 years old when I started my retreat practice. And 
um, you know, I brought this whole kind of over-the-top work ethic to my retreat practice. And this kind of striving is so much of what can become, you know, it can, it can look like it's going to get us all the way there. But, you know, we, we don't strive to finish the race as much as we um, intend to be available for this moment. Just this gentle moment to moment to moment. But for my first retreat, it said on the write-up to uh, bring a pillow to sit on. And so I brought a pillow from my bed. I folded it up and I sat on it. And I really didn't hear that part about it being okay to move or sit in the chair as I followed the schedule exactly. And I remember sitting, sitting there with so much pain in my shoulder. It was like tears were coming down my face. I didn't think I could move. I, I just stayed with it. I worked, I worked so hard. And mostly the best thing on the retreat was the food. You know, I was mostly just looking forward to the next meal all the time. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because I, I finished that retreat and I remember just staring at the schedule every morning, walking down the stairs to my room and looking at the schedule thinking, how on earth am I going to make it through all these periods <laughs> of sitting and walking? And so I got done with that retreat and I made a vow that I would never do that to myself again. It was a complete waste of time. And, you know, I was thinking about these people are talking about getting rid of suffering and I'm just putting myself through suffering. Forget it. And... And then a few days later, I remember sitting in the bathtub and like this little thought popped into my mind, you know, I wonder when I might want to sit another retreat and it surprised me after the intensity of the vow. But um, the truth was that something really deep had been touched in me. There was a way that in the practice and in the teachings, I was... I was resonating with something that I I knew deep in my bones, deep in my being to be true, but that I hadn't quite had words for and I hadn't quite had a a kind of art of how to practice for myself. And, you know, in the meantime, the Dharma is definitely the center of my life and and I do spend a fair bit of time on retreat. But in the meantime, it's interesting how it's changed as the trust in the path has changed because now looking back, so many of my just happiest and most peaceful moments have actually been on retreat. Because there's a way that, you know, on retreat we touch into a kind of peace and happiness that doesn't come from getting the next hit of something pleasant. It's freer than that. It's not from it's not from sense gratification. It's from presence. It's from the nature, like awareness knowing its own nature. And there's a way that presence, even with the hard stuff, there's a there's a pleasure in presence itself. So it's funny, I I laugh sometimes, we we talk so much about mindfulness. Mindfulness is obviously just a huge word, even in the dominant culture these days. It's like what we used to do seems so fringe a long time ago, and it just isn't. But but really we're practicing mind, heart, body, fullness. You know, body, the the beautiful offering from JMO of, of movement, of really embodied movement, you know, keep your mind in your body, keep your body in your mind, because the body 
in a certain sense, the body's always present. You know, it's like just a moment of feeling, oh yeah, my mind's going crazy, oh yeah. Hands touching, spreading, heat, just that simple. The body's, the body's right here. This body is a huge part of your retreat experience, the body moving through space, how it is to be, to be here in your body. To move from the idea of the body, a lot of the time we live in our bodies and just these images, you know, it's like the ideas of the body cranking out, but we miss the, the reality of how it is to be in embodied experience. And it's really important because the dominant culture really trains, trains, trains and reflects back disembodiment. So it's like, oh, right, we are more in our power when we are landed in our bodies. So body fullness, heart fullness. How's your heart today? Are you connected with the state of your heart? What are you, what are you feeling? You know, it's this, these practices actually make us become more sensitized to the world. There can be this idea that, you know, Buddhist practice means you're, you're never ruffled. You're just calm all the time. And I, I, in my experience, that's not how it's been. It's more that the window of presence really grows. The presence, the awareness can hold more and more of the big waves within a kind of sense of steadiness. It's like maybe you actually come and you feel more. In the mind, clear seeing, just like over and over again, connecting with the awareness that's right here. It doesn't matter how many times you come back in a sitting or a walking period. What matters is the kind of the, um, it's the tone of coming back. If you come back and every time it's like, dang it, I did it again, dang it, you're not going to enjoy being here much at all. But if there's a sense of coming back, like, okay, I'm here again. I'm going to begin again. Or just coming back, it's okay, kindness. You might enjoy, you might enjoy being here more. And some of what will help you is to be here wholeheartedly. To be here, like, you're here you're on the retreat, no matter what your mind is doing, just be here wholeheartedly. And, and if you're feeling exhausted, more and more folks come you know, on retreat and just so need to rest. If you're feeling exhausted, you can be here and be wholeheartedly exhausted. It doesn't have to look any certain way. Just being here wholeheartedly, giving yourself to the retreat. You know, just like the teachings have been given to us, you, we can give ourselves to the experience of how it is. What we're doing, you're really waking up, waking up to the knowledge that's already inside of you. Rebecca spoke about this last night, just that that you don't actually get anything in this path. You don't. It's like radical non-acquisition. It's just keep putting stuff down, putting stuff down, putting stuff down to make room. 
And this this uh, practice, the Buddha, was called Sukhiya, and that means the happy one. So we're we're cultivating, you know, happiness that's that's um, that's connected to this moment. It's just like all the instruction. We talk about the body. We talk about breathing, but really, um, we're using breathing and body and sound is just a way of connecting to this moment because you've always been in the present moment. Happiness and peace only live in the present moment. The present moment is just unfathomably precious. It's, it's, all, it's all you've ever had. It's all you ever will have, really. Suzuki Roshi, great, great, great Zen teacher, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. I like how he talks about mindfulness of breathing. He's pointing to the fact that it's like not really about the breathing. He says, when we practice, our mind follows our breathing. When we inhale, the air comes into the inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out. To the outer world. The inner world is limitless and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there is just one whole world. In this limitless world, our throat is like a swinging door. The air comes in and goes out like someone is passing through a swinging door. If you think I the I, if you think I breathe, the I is extra. There's no you to say I, because what we call I is just a swinging door which moves when we inhale and we exhale. It just moves, that's it. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there is no I, no world, no bind, no body, just a swinging door. So when we practice, all that exists is the movement of the breathing and we're aware of this movement. But to be aware of the movement doesn't mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather your universal nature, your, your awakened, your Buddha nature. It's interesting, isn't it? When you mindfulness of breathing, like you think you know, oh, this is what breathing is. But it's like as soon as you become aware, right? of the sensations, it changes. They're flashing, they're flickering, they're points of moonlight. It's not so much of a thing. And this is where, this is where the practice really becomes um, more alive, more embodied. Or you could, uh, you could just You could just uh, practice with the evidence in this article from The Onion about a clinical trial that happened in Seattle. You know the publication, The Onion. They said, um, explaining the participants left the clinical trial feeling calmer and more positive, a study published Monday by psychologists at University of Washington determined 
that people can significantly reduce their anxiety by solving every single one of their personal problems. (laughs) They said, um, our findings suggest that resolving all of the major issues plaguing one's life, as well as the minor ones, is correlated with a decrease in the body's cortisol levels, (laughs) leading to lower stress and an increase in life satisfaction, said the report's lead author, Ellen Monroe, who added that getting oneself out of debt ironing out any interpersonal conflicts at one's workplace, patching up all disagreements with one's spouse and family members, finding a good and affordable nearby restaurant option for when one's friend is in town visiting, (laughs) and taking care of several hundred other lingering concerns in one's life was found to appreciably lessen feelings of worry and tension. She says, once our trial subjects had thoroughly and successfully addressed every situation in their lives that was bothering them, the improvements to mental health and well-being were almost immediate. So we recommend that anyone experiencing anxiety try eliminating every last obstacle in their life (laughs) as soon as possible. (laughs) She goes on and on and on. It's great. It's great. But it's like, okay, you know, we do what we can to, to eliminate the difficulties in life, but... Um, a lot of the difficulties aren't up to us, are they? They're the, the cultures that we're living in, the world that we live in. And this is part of why the practice is just so crucial. You know, so crucial. And, and you know, deep, deep inside, you know, I, I, we, we know, we recognize that it's possible to live with more freedom. You know, and... and what we're doing here is so important because you know the world the world is shaped in a large degree by human hearts human consciousness you know as as we awaken through our hearts is a such an important part of awakening you know the systems of control and dominance and oppression all the isms really are founded in keeping they, they function to keep the heart distracted. You know, in cultivating this non-distractedness, we begin to awaken to the deeper connection that holds us, where where other human beings, you know, other other creatures don't become other in the same way. The isms are really, really rooted. Racism, homophobia, sexism, all of it. It's rooted in distractedness. And so there's a way that mindfulness, this long process of paying attention deeply, it dissolves the messages that the culture tells about you that tells you about yourself or others that aren't true. And this function of dissolving. Dissolving. <laughs> Someone said to me last week, so so you know, these great stories are like currency for Dharma teachers. We we're always trading them, but he's it's great. He said to me, you know, greed Greed, it really burns. It's like, yeah, greed really burns. Hatred, it burns. It really burns. Yeah, yeah, it does. And delusion feels exactly like the truth. <laughs> right? Until it doesn't. It feels exactly like the truth. You know? It's like, oh, you know, I, I think the more that the path unfolds, the more there's just this sense of, all right, this is delusion. Oh, this is delusion. How, how deep it goes. And there's a, there's a, there's a framing in the, in the, in the discourses around, 
what's called a vipalasa. Vipalasa. It's a it's a kind of a fun to say word, but it's a distortion. It's a distortion of perception, a distortion of thought, a distortion of view. And so the mindfulness, the loving awareness is is um really part of how we begin to appreciate and see just how deep the distortions go. You know, this is so much of what keeps implicit bias unconscious, for example. We're just, we're swimming, we're swimming in a certain sense in, in distortions. And this word vipalasa, V, is a sense of division or separation or removal can kind of feel how that is. I love the Pali words, a sense of separating out. And the, the, um, the pa part of the word comes from the word pari, which is, is it's, it's like perimeter, kind of around or complete. And the a in the word means to throw. So kind of a separation, removal, around, throw it. Kind of if you put it all together, there's the image of the mind taking something up turning it around and throwing it back down, which is kind of what minds do. You know, we, kind of, we take in certain data and the momentum of the conditioning, <laughs> the momentum of what feels true is kind of gets processed and then that's how, that's how we live. That's, that's, um, that's how the reality gets distorted. Vipa losses. There's a way that, that um, in these distortions, distortions, like Rebecca was talking about, there's a sense that we really lose our senses in a very, very direct way. And this process, like she said, is really moving from a thought-based reality to a sense-based reality. And becoming much more intimate, intimate with life. In the, in the last... Um, kind of stanza of, of this Vipalasa Sutta. You talk about, in the, but when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind, recuperate. It goes on and on. The sense of recuperating and right or, or wise are used to kind of, you know, they, either one you can use. But the sense of recuperating our, our wise minds, healing, recuperating, returning to, and getting back our bodies, our hearts, our minds, decolonizing our bodies, our hearts, our minds. So there's really a sense of a returning, of a reclamation. So as the well of presence grows, this capacity for non-distractedness, I just want to say a a bit about three different dimensions of what we are offering you, uh, what what you'll hear in the instructions. And the first is we're, we're giving you instructions to gather your hearts around the anchor. You know, to bring a sense of unification, of collectedness, of, of um, 
The, the word is samadhi, really, really unifying, because this practice is not one of disintegration. This is one of integration. We are integrating more deeply for ourselves. So this, this collecting, this samadhi is a, is a kind of, you know, re- every time you return to the anchor, you're, you're making room for this kind of collectedness that has a lot of power in it. But as we collect the heart and mind, it's important to know that it takes time. It has power, um, but it takes time. It takes time. So just the willingness over and over to come back, you know, this sound, this breath, this heart. And something happens as we gather, as we gather the attention in this way. It's like there becomes a, a deep well. I, I use the image sometimes of if life is like a swift moving current, just going along, you know, roaring along. As we, as we gather in this way, as the kind of collectedness unfolds, there can be a sense of there being a dimension of the experience. It's just like a deep pillar going down into the earth. So all this stuff can be going on, but you have your seat. And when you have your seat, you know, you're connected with the nobility of your own heart. That's why the Buddha, all these teachings, oh, noble one, you know, oh, noble one. He's, he's mirroring the, the innate nobility of your heart. And so the, the process of just again and again coming back, this coming back with kindness, Coming back with patience, it's like, it's like um, massaging the mind out of its spasms. You know, like it's just a sense of gently, gently, gently coming back, returning, collecting. So there's those moments, those moments when the monologue might take a rest. And then we're practicing with a letting be. Maybe some letting go, but we're really practicing letting be. I, I hear so often from you know, folks come in and they're, they're wanting to do a retreat to let go of the anger or let go of the grief. And it's more that you know, the places that we struggle, I know my own journeys with loss and grief, it's never been that I let go of the grief. You know, it's like in time, the grief loosens its grip on me and my heart relaxes. But it's not so much that, 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 that I let go. And so there, there's a way that we can be squirmy, you know, with what's here. And the practice is really like, how is it to, to all of it, you know, murderous rage, you know, great vulnerability, you know, so much desire, you think you can't handle it. How is it to, to let it be? To really be practicing softening and widening. That's it, over and over again. You know, really softening the belly, widening the awareness to include what's here. And if you get overwhelmed, you can open your eyes, you can take a walk, you can know when to, when to back off. But, you know, awareness is holistic. Awareness doesn't reject anything this dimension of who you are that that isn't rejecting it's beautiful 
It's beautiful to have contact with this dimension of your being that isn't, that's rejecting nothing. And so the practice is more about intimacy with what's here than it is shaping the experience in a particular direction, a deep kind of intimacy. And I appreciate a teacher named Devi puts it in this way um, because what we're doing is we're making contact with our experience in in a direct and in a kind way. She says, intimacy is deep contactfulness. It's immediate and alive. She goes on to talk about how um, students who feel like they have trouble, you know, letting go. She says, she says, it's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things? You know, if you don't touch things in full consciousness and full awareness with a totally open heart? How do you let go if you don't touch and hold? The first experience is of touch, a profound contact between things with the universe without mental commotion. Everything begins there. Touching, opening, accepting the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, you can bring on mental turmoil. She says, many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold, and so their heart's not fully open. She says, when you touch deeply, when you open to your experience fully, when you accept what's here with the totality of your being, you no longer need to let go. That happens naturally. So the wisdom lets go. And the wisdom is what can't help but, um, you know, take root in a heart that's present, mindful, aware, the wisdom lets go. This practice of letting be. You know, can awareness be with that? You can ask yourself that. Ah, oh, you know, there's difficulties. You can feel the heartbreak. You feel all of it. You know, how how is it to settle back? You know, is it possible for awareness to even touch the edge of this? How is that? And it takes a kind of um, real, genuine curiosity, real genuine interest. The George Washington Carver, who was a really early environmentalist and a great, great botanist, somebody said, how is it that you understand these plants so well? He understood so much about plants and soil and really pioneered all sorts of different ways of of tending to soil. And he says, if you love it enough, anything will talk to you. Am I willing, am I willing gently in my heart to be with this? And that's really what it comes down to. I mean, heck, on one level, you don't even have to be actually present because that won't always be up to you. But just this willingness. Am I willing to be present right 
here with this. And the third is that it is the path unfolds. You know, we talk a lot about becoming awakened. It's really becoming, we become compassion. As we're opening a sense of, of, of compassion, of a willingness to be with res- and respond to the suffering, the dukkha. And it's a path really of falling in love, falling in love with reality instead of the delusion, you know, untethering from the delusion and falling in love with, with truth, with your own capacity to be free. I'm not saying if you're falling in like with, I don't think you're going to like everything, but you can fall in love with, with the truth that, that calls you, you know, to be here, that calls you to, to give yourself in this way. It's so messy, isn't it? And we can say all these things in these beautiful frameworks, but it's, a, it's, it's messy on the inside. It's not neat. It's not linear. But something is happening. You know, it's the nature of a seed to um, give rise to fruit. Something is happening here. I was, I was sitting in my... They have this beautiful comfortable teaching housing teacher housing here at INS out by Gaston Pond and I was remembering a few years ago a experience I had I I um my mother had just died and I was having a, a tough time and I went to visit uh I had the great great good fortune super aware of the privilege in the story that I'm about to tell you um I my best friend was in Germany she was living there and she's a psychotherapist a really great person she's studying she said Erin you know just come visit me just come visit me and so I I went and I visited Terry and my jet lag was so strong for pretty much the whole trip that I, I was in a bit of an altered state and what I thought was going to be a vacation ended up being one of those travel experiences that was more like a retreat you know how it can be like if you want to <laughs> if you want to kind of shake up your sense of identity if you have the conditions that allow you to go travel travel is it really it was really powerful and the, you know the time i was there was um was when the current president of this country had just been elected there was a lot going on it was it was a real experience for me being someone from the united states and traveling and encountering all these these beautiful people who i met and before i went a friend said to me she said erin you're going to paris you know go to this d'Orsay Museum. You've, you've got to go there. And I thought, what? I'm like, not that into art, into art. But she said, no, you've got to do it. And she said, get a ticket, you know, get a ticket online and get there before they open, stand in line. And she said, you know, when they open the doors, run up to the floor where the impressionist art is. And I thought, you know, I really trust this person. They know me well. And I thought, I'll, I'll just do it. And, you know, I like art. I'm not a huge art lover, but I like art, and I've seen some of the, um, you know, in books and, and replicas and re- reprints, these beautiful, um, you know, images from Monet and Picasso and Van Gogh. And so I followed my friend's directions, and I ran up there to the third floor, and nobody was there. And I started um, experiencing these 
these works of art that felt like very much I was completely um, surprised by what happened in me because the works of art felt they felt alive and I I was standing there and these tears just started you know like I basically I was standing there these tears started rolling down my face I didn't know why I didn't understand what was happening but something was happening for me and there was this um this this feeling like my cells were getting rearranged as I was standing there in the museum and there was this real tender kind of joy that that arose for me there was a kind of intimacy and connectedness that I felt through time as I as I saw the you know the poppies the 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 images of poppies of a chair in a room of the train stations that were just imbued with something that really it really pierced my heart and there was just a sense of receiving a transmission through time such humanity and you know there was a huge difference between seeing the image of these images of these pictures in books or in reprints versus being right there and taking them in through my own embodied experience and you know i i later came to learn as i was trying to think why am i so profoundly moved you know by these pieces of art um that they were these artists were painting they were painting more of the experience of seeing than they were painting the forms. They were, they were speaking to kind of the, what the eye was actually seeing more than painting the ideas. And so there was a way that it, it um, what happened for me was, was an actual experience of Vipassana, of clear seeing as I was with this art. And I, I realized that the, um, that these impressionists were violating the rules of academic painting at their time. You know, they, they were moving from the kind of more linear and conceptual ways of creating, and I'm obviously not an art scholar on any level, um, to, to express like, you know, this is, this is what the experience of seeing is. And it's a little like what we're doing here, you know, in the practice moving from all of the ideas, moving from all of the concepts into how is it now in this tender, raw human heart? I think I know what breathing is. What's it like now? You know, there will be some breath that is the last breath for each of us. And at that point, it, 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 may, it may be interesting. But we're being invited into an experience of, of really being available for the Dharma in this way. We see the truth, you know, we see the truth for ourselves. We discover the truth for ourselves. And it's all in the experience. It's very, insight is experiential. Everything here is experiential. And this, this, this unfolding, this opening to the intimacy of life and the, and the kind of deepened s- stability, it happens through your dedication. It happens just, you know, one moment at a time. Just this. 
just this. That's, that's kind of where it all, all emerges from. The, the, the writer Cynthia Ocelli, she says, for a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. You don't have to come completely undone, but for a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. She says the shell cracks, its insides come out, and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like complete destruction. That's what we're doing here. You know, it's just like in, in time that the, the shells begin to be dissolved and something else happens. Something is emerging, something is changing because the mindful presence does dissolve, basically dissolve the identification with and allegiance to the um, deeply rooted belief that you're separate. That's the heart of it. That's what happens here. That's what we're opening to. Hmm. Just take a few minutes of, of quiet together. Let's sit for about five minutes before our meal. allowing both allowing the words to settle and knowing with these talks that there's no need to try to hang on to anything that's said what what needs to remain with you will will remain is already here
And I'll just end with a poem called What Matters by Lisa Schatzky. What matters is that you do not pretend you do not hear the water's ancient melody over stones in the river, and you do not turn away from the questions ringing inside you like bells in the monk's hands. What matters is that you do not ignore the alpine meadows and their wildflowers singing the cobalt sky, and you say yes to the laughter and yes to the tears, and you open yourself up to the mountains so the sun can find you, and the wind caress your face, and the grass kiss your feet. What matters is that you say yes to the dance and yes to the songs, yes to the night and all her stars, yes to the colors painted by light, yes to the deserts and their longings for soul. What matters is that you say yes to the voice inside the voice of the one you forgot, and the one who dreamed and played and loved, and you bring forth what is in you to bring forth, and you break through your own walls and erase your own ceilings, and stumble and fall and get up again as you find your way home. Thank you for your attention and your effort. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.